Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Good morning and welcome to the Vince Coakley Radio Program. How are you today? Hope all is well in your world. <laughs> this world <laughs> that we live in is kind of a crazy one. And we have so much chaos going on, whether it's the Middle East or it's Washington, D.C. And you've got all kinds of drama going on about who will be the next Speaker of the House. That saga is developing at this hour. We will try to bring you an update. In fact, again, we have a little fun with a contest of which member of Congress will join us today to talk about what is going on with this crazy process of selecting a speaker. We'll have an update on what is happening there. Did you expect it was going to drag on this long? Did you have the expectation that, you know, just a matter of days, this would all be figured out and we would move on with life? No such thing would happen. Coming up, we're going to talk about an extraordinary event. The New York Times has admitted we did something wrong. This is absolutely shocking, stunning. But for many, this is a day late and a dollar short after being used as a tool of propaganda. Not the first time. We'll also have the latest going on with the Middle East situation, including a release of more hostages and some terrifying stories shared by at least one of these hostages about what has happened. Also coming up, we will have a bizarre story. When I saw this yesterday, and remember we shared this yesterday, remember we told you the story about the flight that was diverted on Sunday and the off-duty pilot riding in the cockpit getting charged? Well, we know more about what happened here, and this is an absolutely bizarre story. An aviation analyst will join us to talk about what happened here. And how concerned should we be about something like this occurring? This really is an absolutely bizarre story. But first, what's right with our world? I should also tell you, the UN Security Council is holding a meeting on the Israel war. I have to say that... I am not very optimistic about this meeting. If they follow the precedent of other meetings, of other gatherings, of other decisions, I fully expect more anti-Israel actions. That's probably what's going to happen here. Condemnation, talk about both sides, and urging Israel to show restraint. So... That is what is likely to happen amid all of the discussions that take place at this debacle 
known as the UN. Let's begin with what's right. What's right is North Carolina as a place to live. You know, I I don't know about you, but I'm pretty proud of my state. One of the reasons I've been here for 30 years. But I think it's pretty extraordinary to live in a state where you actually have people continuing to come in. As opposed to other states where people are running away, like California. And you can understand why they're trying to get away. Charlotte Observer has this story. People are moving to North Carolina from these 10 states the most. North Carolina with the fourth highest number of residents moving from other states in 2022. Number four. That's pretty impressive. Which states did people move from to North Carolina the most? We gained 341,582 people from other states last year. That's a lot of people moving in. Only Florida, Texas, and California had more residents move from other states. Most new residents, well, we'll get to that. We'll start from the bottom. New Jersey, 10,750. Pennsylvania, 11,683. Maryland, 12,924. Texas, 16,332. Georgia, 22,551. California, 22,891. That's quite a journey. New York, 25,024. South Carolina, just crossing the border, 27,961. Virginia, people coming from the other direction, 33,919. And this is what surprised me. Most of the people coming into the state came from Florida, 34,920. If I were to think of a place I would consider moving, Florida would probably be high in the list. So it's kind of surprising to me. We've got people who are actually moving here from the Sunshine State. 2023 study by United Van Lines found the number one reason people moved to North Carolina, which is 30%, was to be closer to family. Makes a lot of sense. Another nearly 30% moved here for work. And about 25% moved here for retirement. I think that's a pretty good decision. You know, we make all the jokes about people coming to the south to retire. You don't hear very much about people moving north to retire. And for good reason. One of the things I I know I love about this area is the weather. I cannot remember the last time we've had a real winter. This has just been a great experience weather-wise, culture-wise, economy-wise. So you can fully understand why not only would people move here, but they would also want to come and join their relatives to take in all that this state and the region has to offer. It's the other thing is the proximity. Think of all the places you're able to go 
three and a half, four hours, you can get to any number of beaches in North and South Carolina. You've got the mountains. And on top of that, you have the number two hub for American Airlines. The ability to travel to, what is it, over 150 or so cities? So you've got mobility. You've got opportunities for connection, for travel, for what else could you possibly want? I'm curious for you, especially if you're a newcomer. Why did you come to North Carolina? What was the attraction for you? Love to get your thoughts as we continue our Tuesday broadcast. Our phone number, 704 Still come to the broadcast. We'll have a little fun talking about the wonderful folks at the New York Times. They have decided to apologize for a story they got wrong. Boy, is this a shocker. We'll also have the latest Middle East headlines, latest developments there, including hostage release. And we'll delve into the speaker contest, such as it is. We'll tell you what is happening there. A conversation coming up with a member of Congress. I know it's just dropping the buckets, but we now have a couple of additional hostages released by Hamas. Two elderly Israeli hostages. This was a deal brokered by Gutter and Egypt. Both of them kidnapped from the same kibbutz near the border with Gaza. October 7th. During that cross-border attack that left 1,400 people dead, more than 200 people kidnapped and taken to Gaza. Both women are elderly and in need of medical care. Their husbands, who were taken with them, remain in Gaza. These folks are absolutely cruel. This news coming as President Joe Biden told the independents the U.S. would not advocate for a deal with Hamas over hostages in return for a ceasefire. Good for him. And I hope he stands firm on this. This is not about making some sort of a deal to keep Hamas alive, because that's what this amounts to. Biden says we should have these hostages released and then we can talk. One of these women, her husband, is a peace activist and retired journalist who would drive Palestinians who needed medical treatment from Gaza to hospitals in East Jerusalem. Isn't this pretty amazing? Here's a guy who's taking care of Palestinians. And what's the reward? Getting kidnapped. You and your wife are kidnapped. This is crazy. The daughter who lives in London confirming that her parents were indeed in captivity, and mom has been released. I cannot put into words the relief. She is now safe. I'll remain focused on securing the release of my father. And all those, some 200 innocent people, remain hostages in Gaza. The grandson of one of the other hostages saying, 
We're truly hoping this is just the beginning of the release of all the remaining hostages. And we hope and pray this indeed will be the case. And we have a little more information about how bad this experience has been. One of those hostages released by Hamas describing her ordeal after she was kidnapped by gunmen and taken into a tunnel system in Gaza during the Palestinian militant group's deadly assault. She basically says, I went through hell. Do you have any doubt? Her name is Yokoved Lifshitz, a frail 85-year-old grandmother. One of two hostages released Monday, recounting the moment militants snatched her from her home in the kibbutz and drove her away on a motorbike towards Gaza. A painful act during which she said she was beaten and sustained bruises. Forced to walk on wet ground, descended into an underground tunnel system she likened to a spider web, where she was greeted by people who told us we believe in the Koran and promised not to harm her and her fellow hostages. Her daughter, Sharon, who helped convey her mother's comments to reporters, said there was a huge network of tunnels. She was initially grouped together with 25 other people before her captors separated her into a smaller group with four other individuals from her kibbutz. She said they slept on mattresses on the floor of the tunnels, ate the same food as Hamas fighters, and received regular treatment from doctors during her incarceration. They literally took care of the sanitary side of things so we didn't get sick. Each of the five hostages in her group received their own doctor. And there was a paramedic present who supervised medication. They were very generous to us. They kept us clean. They took care of every detail. There are a lot of women, and they know about feminine hygiene. They took care of everything there. Ah, my goodness. Lifshitz also accused the Israeli Defense Forces and Shin Bet Intelligence Service of not taking threats from Hamas seriously and said the costly Gaza border fence erected by Israel had done nothing to protect her community from Hamas's attack. The lack of awareness by Shin Bet and the IDF hurt us a lot. They warned us three weeks beforehand. They burned fields. They sent fire balloons. And the IDF did not treat it seriously. Does this sound familiar to you? Some of the attacks by Al-Qaeda before the big one? Oh, we just brushed it off. No big deal. Not us so much. Our government officials who claim to know so much. Lifshitz explained how all of the events that she described culminated in the attack on October 7th. All of a sudden, Sunday morning, everything was very quiet. There was a hard pounding on the settlement. Not long after, hordes of Hamas fighters broke through the kibbutz's expensive fences and kept coming in, in droves. Very difficult and unpleasant. After she concluded her remarks, Sharon said her mother's feeling was, the story's not over until everybody comes back. As I mentioned, we continue to pray for all of the hostages to get safely home to their families. This 
is one of the situations where information is very important. Accurate information, and I'm sure many of you are not surprised at all, by the propaganda that is coming out from Hamas. What's sad is to watch willing idiot reporters communicate this information without question or judgment. Coming up, I'm going to tell you what's happening with the New York Times. They've actually had to do a mea culpa on that Gaza hospital explosion. Remember that? It was originally reported that this was an Israeli attack. The Palestinians, how did they know that the Israelis did this? Well, of course they knew because the Palestinian group told them. Because Hamas told them. How could you be so naive frankly stupid we'll talk about this may a couple but at the same time we'll talk about how a member of congress is doubling down on all of these stories that are inaccurate just blows your mind I will go on record in saying this woman needs to be thrown out of congress we'll talk about her but first coming up we'll have a conversation about what's going on with the race for Speaker of the House. We'll delve into that and much more as we continue our Tuesday broadcast. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com. And talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Still to come on the broadcast, we're going to talk about this bizarre incident that happens over the weekend with Alaska Airlines. A pilot who basically tried to crash a plane. This is an absolutely crazy story. That conversation coming up in just a few minutes. There are some who've made the argument that there are some members of Congress who would like to just crash our government. Not in a healthy way, but it's just destructive. Here's the latest on the bizarre situation we've dealt with in the House of Representatives. Chaos abounds. Republican Party still failing to unite around a single candidate. Eight contenders still in the running. Monday night, the GOP spent hours behind closed doors in the candidate forum, emerged with no clear nominee. Nine candidates went into the meeting. And in the process, Dan Muser, he is a person who dropped out. Now we're down to eight. <laughs> How helpful is that? Some Republicans struck an optimistic note that they will have a speaker by the end of today. But it was clear there's no real front-runner here. Mr. Emmer, as in Tom Emmer, mulled as the favorite, but is facing opposition from Donald Trump allies. Well, what is going on with this situation, and where should we stand? I told you who I would favor in this situation. Joining us this morning to talk about it, our very faithful friend, south of the border, Ralph Norman, representing South Carolina's 5th Congressional District. Good morning and welcome back, sir. 
Well, glad to be with you, Vince. Well, first off, uh, where do we stand here? Do you think, are you optimistic, uh, as some seem to be, that this is going to get resolved today? You know, I think that's wishful thinking. Um, and I, I do think that we're closer now than we were before, but we're still pretty far apart. We just had the first round of voting, and the way it works, the top, can, top the, the lowest candidate with the lowest number of votes gets dropped. So we just dropped Pete Sessions. So we've got seven more to uh, to go through. I think as it moves forward, uh, and Tom Emma was the top vote getter at 78 on the first go round, followed by um, Iron Donalds and uh, the others that are vying for this job who surprisingly didn't get any more votes. Emmer was surprising with the, the numbers he got. But um, we'll play it out and see. I know as a Freedom Caucus, we want to interview anybody that, that it eventually gets the number before we commit to them. And uh, this is a healthy process, Vince, to be honest with you. This thing started back a year in January with the, the one word that we've heard is lack of trust. And that in, in McCarthy, and that's really what happened. So the ones that we've been meeting late in the night and then starting early in the morning, I uh, want somebody we trust and somebody that you know we may not agree with all the time, but that'll shoot you straight. So uh, now we're down to seven people in this. Um, so you mentioned at the top of the list is Tom Emmer, and right behind, did I understand correctly, it's Byron Donalds right behind him? I think my, yeah, I saw the list. There was some noise in there. I couldn't find it. Mike, uh, uh, I think it was last name. Byron Donalds was third, I think. Kevin Hearn was in there. Uh, but Jack Bergman had a low number, I think 18. But it's going to it's going to narrow down. I, I if I had to bet now, it'd be between Emmer and probably Byron Donalds. Um, but it could another one could come up. It's a lot of factions that a lot of different things come into play. On this now, vote. are you guys going to continue to operate kind of behind the scenes all day until this process is over before going to the floor? Is that how this works? Yeah, the way we want to do it is is resolve the differences without going on the floor and i think we'll do it in you know in the conference room like we're in and get everybody on board so that we have the 217 that's the magic number and i think we'll end up with it okay so you think this time around that we'll actually get to that magic number i think eventually yes will it be today i can't say will it be tomorrow uh i can't say either but it's a uh it's just a, a long process. But, again, I, I don't look on this as bad. American, Americans have more concern about, you know, what they're paying for gas, security, war, war in the Middle East, and other things rather than who the speaker is. But uh, up, up in Washington, D.C., they're portraying it as a calamity. I just don't look at it like that. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. I'm, I'm very curious. What's the atmosphere in there? Is it relatively friendly, peaceful? Uh, is it spirited? Are there uh, expressions of anger, frustration? Uh, what What's the mood there? No, not uh, definitely not anger, not frustration. Um, you know, everybody's talking to other members, and it's you know this really is personal. People have the different reasons for voting, the different ways they do. 
So, you know, I don't look on it. Uh, you know, some members are quietly seething because their man didn't get the vote. And I was a Jim Jordan supporter. I mean, Jim Jordan was the best messenger, the truth served, the man that I really wanted. But I don't always get what I want. So that's the feeling of most of the members that day that are in the room. Do you think it's still possible we will get a genuine conservative? Are there members of the conference uh, who are just hell-bent on not allowing a conservative to win? Or do you think ultimately they would be willing to allow one to take this position? You know, money plays a big part into it. I know that's money. Jordan would not play money favorites. That's one of the reasons for his demise, particularly with the appropriators. So, but it's a kind of a different day now when you have to stand up, as we will do in conference, and, and say who you're going to vote for. And no secret ballots. I'm never like that. I mean, secret ballots are okay for the first go around, but really, you, know, you ought to stand up and say who, who you're voting for. And let's just say if it ends up with five that are against um, the eventual the, the person that gets the most votes, you're going to have to explain that. And I don't see that as wrong. Freedom Caucus will get whoever comes out as winner. Before we cast our vote for them on the floor, we want to talk with them and see, are they going to be conservative? Are they not going to write checks on blank bank accounts that are empty? Are they going to be a true conservative? That's our question. And it's a, I am. It's a growing number. Well, I'm certainly glad to hear that. And again, we so appreciate uh, the stand that you've taken along with other members of the uh, Carolina delegation, so to speak. Um, we thank you very much for dropping out and uh, giving uh, us an opportunity to find out what's going on behind the scenes. So uh, keep us posted, and God bless you, man. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. See you. Ralph Norman joining us to talk about what's going on with the speaker's race. So now we're down to seven. So they're going to keep doing this, and we'll find out who else gets voted off the island. If I remember correctly, when we talked with Dan Bishop yesterday, I don't know if they have the same rules today. I should have asked them. They had to surrender their phones. They were not allowed to take phones into that particular meeting. So we will try to find out what's going on behind the scenes and uh, keep you posted up until the end of this broadcast on where we stand as to who is left. You know, it's pretty sad when you've got people who call themselves journalists, especially American journalists, their first reflexive reaction when Hamas, our enemies, put out stories that are putting Americans, that are putting Israelis in a bad light, they are just... Johnny on the spot, ready to report it. Show how terrible these Israelis are. This is the mindset over the New York Times. This should not be surprising. You should remember the New York Times, this newspaper of record, is a newspaper that pretty much covered up the Holocaust. They covered it up. Why did they cover it up? 
Well, you have to ask them. As the expression goes, they certainly have a lot of splainin' to do. And they really do. Lots of splainin' to do. So, the Daily Beast reports on this, and this is a news agency that would be very friendly, very friendly, to the New York Times. They're leftists. But here's how the Daily Beast reports this. Talk about too little, too late. Monday morning, the New York Times finally copped to a huge error, despite its earlier coverage to the contrary. There's no available evidence Israeli forces attacked the hospital in Gaza City. This is my interpretation. The Times never comes right out and says they got it wrong, but the editor's note does say American and other international officials have said their evidence indicates the rocket came from Palestinian fighter positions. You wouldn't know by reading the stilted and benign language the editor's note, but the Times' original October 17th headline read, Israeli strike kills hundreds at hospital, Palestinians say. The phrasing was irresponsible, to say the least. Do you think? (laughs) The Times now admits they relied too heavily on claims by Hamas. Oh, my goodness. Sit with that statement for a minute. You know the old reporter's maxim. If your mother tells you she loves you, check it out. Well, if that's true, what should you do when a terrorist organization tells you something? Of course, the Times weren't the only ones not to thoroughly vet the Gaza Health Ministry's evidence-free allegation despite Israel's quick disavowal of responsibility. Numerous outlets, including AP, Reuters, and the Daily Beast, originally reported Israel was responsible for the strike on the hospital. Such supposed confirmation made it sound like a fact rather than an early unvetted report. Regardless, the news sparked thousands of protesters shouting anti-Israel slogans gathered in Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Egypt, and Tunisia. And I would dare suggest they not only put Israel, Jewish people in danger, they put Americans in danger. In fairness, the Times, within two hours, the Grey Lady's editor's note tells us the headline and other text at the top of the website reflected the dispute of responsibility. The damage was already done. The problem with retroactively changing a story, once we've heard misinformation, it's hard to uproot even when we want to know the truth. According to neuroscientists and journalists Richard Seema in the Washington Post last November, multiple studies have found that misinformation can still influence our thinking even if we receive a correction and believe it to be true. A phenomenon known as the continued influence effect. So you've learned something here. You heard of this before? The continued influence effect. So it's the first thing you hear. And this is the narrative that stays in your mind. And yes, it's been corrected, but you're still kind of... Your view is colored by what you've already heard. But what do you do when you have a member of Congress who even after the facts have come out on this still is promoting propaganda 
This is a woman who really does need to be stopped. Rashida Tlaib. Still doubts Israel's claim about the hospital explosion, calling for an independent investigation. What? Breitbart reports, squad member Ms. Tlaib continues to doubt that an errant Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket, not an Israeli Defense Force rocket, hit the hospital in Gaza City October 17th. In an official statement released Ms. Tlaib said media outlets and third-party analysts have been raising doubts about Israel's presented evidence that an errant Palestinian jihad rocket hit a hospital's parking lot in Gaza, which possibly killed 50 people, not the 500 initially reported. Media outlets and third-party analysts have raised doubts about these claims and evidence offered by both Israel and the Gaza Ministry of Health. I agree with the United Nations that an independent investigation is necessary, she wrote. She added, I cannot uncritically accept Israel's denials of responsibility as fact, especially in light of confirmation from the World Health Organization. Israel has bombed numerous medical facilities in Gaza and reports from the Palestinian Red Crescent Society of ongoing threats from the Israeli military to evacuate hospitals. Tlaib stressed that both the Israeli and United States governments have long used lies to cover up war crimes. She called for an independent investigation to settle the dispute. Both the Israeli and United States governments have long documented histories of misleading the public about wars and war crimes, like last year's Israeli military assassination of Shireen Abu Akleh and the false claims of weapons of mass destruction that led our country into the Iraq War and cannot clear themselves of responsibility without an independent inter international investigation. This debate should not distract us from the urgent need for a ceasefire to save innocent civilian lives. Unbelievable, isn't it? This woman has no business in Congress. Which is another reason we really have to get control of our immigration system. We've got to. This is horrible. That people in this country would elect someone like her. It tells you. We're in trouble. Real trouble. Still to come in the broadcast, that bizarre story about a pilot who apparently tried to crash a plane on Sunday. What in the world was going on here? And how did this happen? This guy's in the jump seat, but somehow was able to get his hands on some controls. We'll tell you what he tried to do and fortunately how it was stopped. We'll have that conversation and much more as we continue our Tuesday broadcast of the Vince Coakley radio program. Your calls welcome 704-570-1110. The news coming up next. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. 
Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Welcome to our number two of the Vince Coakley Radio Program. Yesterday, we told you it's breaking news about a bizarre story. And you talk about bizarre. Now, I explained to you that sometimes when you are flying, you may not know this, but you may have noticed there's an extra pilot on the plane, especially on regional flights. You may have a situation where there's a pilot who is doing something called jump seating. Maybe they're going to that city to be positioned for a future flight. And they sit in the cockpit. So we have a bizarre story that unfolded on Sunday. Let me first tell you about what happened. This is CNN's version of what took place. An off-duty pilot riding as a passenger in the cockpit of an Alaska Airlines flight tried to disrupt the operation of the engines, forcing the flight en route to San Francisco to divert to Portland, Oregon. The suspect, identified by police as Joseph D. Emerson, he's 44 years old, was subdued by the flight crew and taken into custody by the Port of Portland Police. Online booking records show Emerson has been charged with 83 felony counts of attempted murder, 83 counts of reckless endangerment, one count of endangering an aircraft. Here's what happened. After taking off from Painfield Airport in Everett, Washington, flight 2059, operated by Horizon Air, a regional carrier owned by Alaska Airlines. This is kind of like the um, regionals that would operate for the other major airlines. They reported a credible security threat related to an off-duty Alaska Airlines pilot who was traveling in the flight deck jump seat. Now, this is all the information that we had yesterday. That was it. But now we've learned more. Alaska Airlines told CNN the off-duty pilot attempted to shut down both engines by pulling the Embraer 175's engine fire extinguisher handles. The quick reaction of the captain and first officer kept the engines from failing completely. Alaska Airlines said in a statement the fire suppression system consists of a T-handle for each engine. When pulled, a valve on the wing closes to shut off fuel to the engine. After they are pulled, some residual fuel remains in the line, and the quick reaction of our crew to reset the handles restored fuel flow and prevented fuel starvation. Translation. <laughs> if you have fuel starvation, these engines go out, and you have a huge glider. Now, if, you, I, if you've not watched, I encourage you to watch Air Crash Investigation. Because you will see that if there is an engine fire, this is what they do. They pull this T-handle, and basically what it does is it shuts off the fuel to starve the fire. And it puts it out. But at the same time, it also kills the engine. 
So the engine's done. So many of you are probably asking the question, how in the world did this person who's sitting in a jump seat reach these controls and why? What was this all about? Well, if you watch Air Crash Investigation, one of the analysts that they have on the broadcast, one of my favorites, his name is Jeff Wise, and he is back on the program to explain, provide some sort of insight on this uh, pure madness. He is a science journalist who writes for New York Magazine and also is behind the Deep Dive MH370.com podcast, which we will hopefully talk about a little later on, if Jeff has time. Welcome back to the broadcast, Jeff. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about this, and because a lot of people are probably kind of puzzled here. It's like, okay, first off, you got another pilot in the plane in the jump seat how do they get their hands on the controls now i if i understand correctly this control is actually overhead um within reach of a person in that jump seat Right. So I think you can imagine the layout of a typical, you know, airliner cockpit. You've got the left-hand seat and the right-hand seat. And then behind that, you know, more towards where the passengers are, you've got a jump seat where someone can sit. And this is very commonly done. You know, if I'm a pilot and I'm flying from Seattle to somewhere else, but I'm not in Seattle, I can hop on, you know, another plane and get there this way, you know, instead of and instead of taking up a seat that a, that a revenue generating passenger would be paying for. Um, it's just you know, like a free seat that uh, and now and not everyone can sit. Now, obviously, nine eleven, you know, they they sort of cracked down on just having any old person sit up in the cockpit. Um, but generally, they trust other pilots. I mean, you're giving this this um, person access to the flight controls, and in this case the uh, fire suppression uh, system and and uh, so it's it, it's a position of trust which obviously in this case was misplaced i think this is something that is uh you know deeply disturbing on so many levels at this point we've not heard anything at all about a motive I'm, I'm not even sure this person worked for that same airline because these airlines have agreements with each other to allow people to sit in the jump seat and and we've got huge questions here about motive uh we do know that they know enough to charge this person with uh, what amounts to uh, attempting to kill all of the people on that plane. Uh, tell us what happens, for instance, when that, uh, that thing is actually pulled. I was explaining before, those engines are basically dead and you have a glider. Uh, how yeah. dire is this? Well, I, I made a little short video that I put up on Twitter uh, last night because there's a couple of starting a couple of peculiar things. Um, one is that it, it it sounds like this guy was trying to commit mass murder suicide, right? He everyone would die on the plane, and he would die too. Um, and this has happened a couple of times. MH370 being a famous case where we don't really know what happened to the plane, but one of the leading theories is that that it was a kind of elaborate murder suicide along these lines. But so, yeah, so why would you turn off the engines of a plane that you're in and that's flying at high altitude? Well, maybe you want to die. Um, but what's peculiar to me from a pilot's perspective is to turn a plane into a glider is not the worst of all possible things. I mean, we all remember, of course, the famous case of Sully, you know, who, who lost his engine power on takeoff. 
from LaGuardia and was able to, you know, get it into the river without any fatalities. And there was another case that I, I that a lot of people haven't heard of, but it's in one of aviation's most amazing stories. It's called the Gimli Glider. I love the that Air story. Canada pilots lost both engines and managed to land it uh, as a glider on an, a on a former runway that had been turned into a. Uh, Drag race. Dragway. Drag yeah. <laughs> yes. Amazing story. Amazing nobody's made a movie out of it. But so, like I said, it's not the worst thing. If you wanted to kill yourself, like, that's not the best way to do it because your odds are, like, maybe 50-50 or something, depending on where you are, you know, if there's runways nearby or something. Um, but, you know, what, something that people might not know is that the tip of the electrical systems on planes, which, is, which are important, you've got your communications, your flight control systems, and so forth, um, those all run off of electricity that comes from generators that are attached to the engines. So if you lose your engine power, you're losing a source of electricity. Now, these planes also have a, a backup system called the APU, um, which is typically in the back, and it's a turbine engine that will turn on and generate electricity. They also have other backup systems uh, to back up that as well. But um, so you're not just losing your, your thrust that's keeping in the air, you're also losing your electricity. So that's kind of problematic as well. But as I said, there's backup systems, so it's not that bad. You know, it's kind of interesting here. Uh, we, we're up against a hard break here. I, I do want to ask you, do you think this is going to lead to new scrutiny by the FAA uh, on rules governing uh, people sitting in jump seats? Is this going to get another look now? There is a fundamental problem of aviation in the year 2023, which is that it involves human beings, and human beings are not 100% reliable. We go crazy. And you talked about motive earlier, and I mean, all I've heard so far is that maybe this guy had a psychotic break or something. Uh, you know, I, he, maybe he was a terrorist, maybe he had some other kind of political motives, or maybe he was, you know, was, a, was part of an elaborate insurance scammer. There, there, similar things have happened through in, in, over recent decades, and they tend to have, you know, maybe the guy had debts he couldn't pay, or you know, maybe he took out an extra life insurance policy on himself. We don't know at this point, but whatever the, whatever the explanation is, it reveals the many ways that human beings are flawed. And you know, we haven't had a fatal, a, a fatal passenger aircraft uh, commercial fl- accident since 2009. So the safety record of U.S. domestic aviation, at least in the kind of airliner space, is incredibly good. You're much more at risk if you get up in your uncle's 172 Cessna, you know, little planes. But in terms of you buy a ticket on United or American or Alaska Airlines, your, your, your safety is incredibly high but that is but, but humans are the weak link yes they are no question about that jeff wise talking with us you're able to hold on to talk about mh370 right no absolutely we will talk about this this is a mystery that is still with us nine years later ladies and gentlemen we'll talk about this and much more as we continue our tuesday broadcast whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. We are back on the Vince Coakley Radio Program. Breaking news, a developing story... The United States is 
right now making plans for mass evacuations if this Gaza war escalates. We'll tell you more about this story coming up in just a bit. We're having a conversation with science journalist Jeff Wise, and one of the things that has been near and dear to his heart is a story that remains a mystery nine years later. We're talking about Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. This was a flight that disappeared from radar. March 8th, 2014, flying from Kuala Lumpur International Airport in Malaysia. On the way to Beijing, Capital International Airport in China. The plane disappeared. It lost contact with air traffic control 38 minutes after takeoff. Somewhere allegedly over the South China Sea, lost from secondary surveillance radar screens, but then tracked by the Malaysian military's primary radar system for another hour, deviating from its path. And to this day, this plane has never been found with all of its 227 passengers and 12 crew on board. So... What is your theory? Jeff Wise, you do a podcast on this. What is your theory about what happened here? Uh, Well, you know, I really am kind of uh, fascinated by this case, and I've been studying uh, studying it for almost a decade now. And it's so uh, wrapped up in in, in rumors and and conspiracy theories and um, all kinds of speculation. And the reason I started this podcast, Deep Dive MH370, is to kind of really bring uh, the light of clarity to it and kind of really to explain to people what is the data that we have and what does it mean. You know, as a reporter, I, I look at a lot. I, I, I investigate a lot of different stories, and generally, you you, you go into a story with a, a sense of not really knowing what's going on, and then you gradually clarify things, and it gets more and more uh, reasonable as you understand what's going on. MH370 is a peculiar story in that the closer you look at it, and the more you really delve into the technical details, the weirder it gets. It's really hard to explain how we got this this satellite data that that investigators used to try to pinpoint a, a location in the southern Indian Ocean, where they searched for for years uh, at many miles of depth, far far from land, and yet never found this plane where it was supposed to be. And so, um, it's really worth looking into because it's just so fascinating that a story could be this complicated and this baffling. Uh, but it's also important because we. It's really kind of discomforting to know that you could get on a plane and conceivably just vanish from the face of the earth. It is absolutely scary. Uh, uh, I I saw. I think there was a, a Netflix special on this that you were a part of. Isn't that correct? That's uh, right. They kind of used me as the as the explainer who kind of like walked to the, the 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 audience through the various steps of what happened. It was a multi part process. As you said, it was supposed to go to Beijing. It turned back. It was seen on military radar. It vanished from military radar, and then it reappeared uh, very bafflingly. Um, It started to broadcast the satellite uh, data um, for reasons that nobody has really given a very convincing explanation for why it started to broadcast this information. Somebody must have turned it on the satellite uh, antenna, but again, uh, not clear why. So... Uh, from here, do you think we'll ever find out exactly what happened here? Do you think we'll find the plane? Because at this point, we've only found some debris. I think we need to talk, we need to stop and take a deep breath and reassess 
Um, you know, uh, when the space shuttle crashed, uh, obviously NASA had big problems, and they sort of stopped, put down their tools, and said, okay, let's figure out what's going on here. And they convened a blue panel of scientific experts and heavyweights to come in and say, okay, let's carefully, piece by piece, go through the data and figure out where we went wrong. I think we need to do something similar with MH370. There's a lot of confusion out there, a lot of misinformation, a lot of crazy and wild speculation. We need to back away from that. We need to sort of calmly um, and carefully go through the data. Now, as I make the point I make in the podcast is that if you look at it really carefully and you try to make sense of this data that we have, there's really only two explanations for where this plane could be. Um, and other people have other theories, but they need to match that theory against the evidence. And you need to make a case. That's what science is. You, you have a hypothesis, and then you see if the evidence lines up with your hypothesis. And if you do that carefully, I think there's very, actually very few um, plausible theories about what could have happened to it. And, so I, and I think it's important for people to kind of understand what those might be. We only have about a minute left in this segment. Uh, what do you think is the strongest theory, plausible theory, about what happened here? The most popular theory is that the pilot, um, sort of in the similar page as this recent Alaska Airlines pilot who, who tried to commit murder-suicide yesterday, that he took it and flew it into the southern Indian Ocean in a long and elaborate plan to commit suicide. The other possibility is that the plane was hijacked and was taken up to Kazakhstan, um, probably as part of Russia's um, attack on Ukraine. And to this day, all of this remains a mystery and I hope one day we'll find out exactly what happened here. If you'd like to follow more about this, just go to deepdivemh370.com so that you can uh, check out this podcast and continue to follow this, uh, this story that, at this point, remains a mystery. Jeff Wise, awesome to have you on the broadcast, sir, and look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you so much. All right. What are your thoughts, folks, on this and the incident that occurred over the weekend that we talked about? Does this give you any hesitation about flying? I think it's really cool how so many of these things are headed off. Like, I mean, just think of the pilots, the very alert pilots on this plane on Sunday when this fire suppression system is turned on, immediately recognize this and, and are able to shut this off. Before damage is done, they get the guy out of the cockpit, they land the plane, get the guy off, and everybody's safe. And remember what Jeff Weiss says. 2009 was the last commercial fatality on a plane. I think um, that is an extraordinary record. And again, this is, uh, I think it was Sully who said that uh, the most dangerous time for him was uh, traveling on the L.A. freeway on the way to work it was not in the air and that's absolutely true even today we're back in the vince coakley radio program 36 minutes after the hour of 11 o'clock at this hour anthony blinken our secretary of state is addressing the United Nations, speaking on this situation, saying all acts of terrorism are unjustifiable. As you know, the United Nations Security Council is addressing 
the ongoing situation with Israel. And as I've said before, I fully expect nothing, <laughs> nothing productive. It will be something probably lopsided against Israel. Let's listen in on Anthony Blinken and hear some of his comments as he speaks live at the United Nations. We continue to coordinate closely with Egypt, Israel, and partners across the region, as well as with the United Nations, to build mechanisms that will enable sustained humanitarian assistance to flow to civilians in Gaza without benefiting Hamas or any other terrorist group. President Biden appointed one of our most senior diplomats, Ambassador David Satterfield, to lead our humanitarian efforts, which he is currently doing on the ground. The United States has committed an additional $100 million in humanitarian assistance to Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank, bringing the total aid that we've provided to the Palestinian people over the past two and a half years to more than $1.6 billion. That makes the United States the largest single country donor, by far, to the Palestinian people. We call on all countries, particularly those with the greatest capacity to give, to join us in meeting the UN's appeal for the humanitarian situation in Gaza. At the heart of our efforts to save innocent lives in this conflict, and in every conflict for that matter, is our core belief that every civilian life is equally valuable. There is no hierarchy when it comes to protecting civilian lives. A civilian is a civilian is a civilian, no matter his or her nationality, ethnicity, age, gender, faith. That's why America mourns the loss of every single innocent life in this crisis, including innocent Israeli and Palestinian men, women, children, elderly people, Muslim, Jews, Christians, people of all nationalities and faiths, including at least 35 UN staff members. That's why it's imperative that we work to protect all civilians in this conflict, to prevent more deaths atop the many that have already occurred. The value we place on civilian life is the driving force behind our efforts to secure the release of hostages held by Hamas and other terrorist groups in Gaza. I, as others have, had the occasion to meet with families of those missing and suspected to be in the hands of Hamas on my recent trip. Several, as you know, are in this room with us today. None of us, none of us can imagine the nightmare they're living, something no family should have to endure. Their loved ones must be released immediately, unconditionally, and every member of this council, indeed, every member of this body, should insist on that, insist on that, insist on that. We're grateful to Qatar, to Egypt, to the ICRC for helping secure the release of four of Hamas's hostages, but at least 200 more, and again, from many of our nations, are still in the grip of Hamas. So, again, I implore every member here, use your voice, use your influence, use your leverage to secure their unconditional and immediate release. Third, we're all determined to prevent this conflict. You've heard comments there from Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, who is speaking right now before the United Nations. And we'll keep you posted on what happens here of any consequence. Here's what's going on on the ground. The Biden administration 
is preparing for the possibility hundreds. Now, before I share this story, I have to tell you, I have to look at this story with a little bit of skepticism because I think back to Afghanistan and how people were left essentially abandoned in Afghanistan. Not only Americans, but some of the Afghan people who helped us. Nonetheless, the Biden administration is now preparing for the possibility that hundreds of thousands of American citizens will require evacuation from the Middle East if the bloodshed in Gaza cannot be contained. The specter of such an operation comes as Israeli forces, aided by U.S. weapons and military advisors, prepare for what is widely expected to be a perilous ground offensive against Hamas militants responsible for the stunning cross-border attack that has reignited hostilities. The official speaking on the condition of anonymity to detail internal deliberations said Americans living in Israel and neighboring Lebanon are of particular concern, though they stress that an evacuation of that magnitude is considered a worst-case scenario and that other outcomes are seen as more likely. Still, one official said it would be irresponsible not to have a plan for everything. The administration, despite its forceful support for Israel, is deeply alarmed by the prospect of escalation and in recent days turned its attention in part to the complicated logistics of abruptly having to relocate a large number of people, according to three people familiar with the discussions. There were about 600,000 U.S. citizens in Israel, another 86,000 believed to be in Lebanon when Hamas attacked. The concern in Lebanon chiefly over Hezbollah, a political party and militant group that, along with allies, currently controls the largest number of parliamentary seats. Did you hear that? Hezbollah. It entered parliament in 1992, long accepted training and weapons from Iran, prompting concerns it could attack Israel from the north, creating a two-front war that would stretch Israeli forces. They've already had skirmishes along their shared border. One official saying this has become a real issue. The administration's very, very worried. This thing is going to get out of hand. And the administration's concern extends beyond these two countries. As officials watch the street protests that have spread across the Arab world, putting both U.S. personnel and citizens in the region at heightened risk. The bombardment of Gaza has inflamed regional fury at Israel and its treatment of Palestinians, an issue some officials believe no longer carried as much importance in the Arab world. Bruce Rydell, senior fellow with Brookings Institution and former official in the Clinton administration, said the street, to a large extent, is now in charge. We were told for the last 10 years the Arab world and Muslim world didn't care about Palestine anymore. And Abraham Accords were proof of that. This was the agreement signed by the governments of Sudan, Morocco, Bahrain, and UAE, aimed at normalizing relations with Israel. Now Palestine has come back. And this person saying, I don't think it ever went away. Nightmare scenario. Possibility of needing to evacuate. I mean, you saw what happened in Afghanistan. Can you imagine trying to evacuate nearly 700,000 people 
I cannot imagine, and I hope this is not necessary. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Final stretch of the Vince Coakley radio program on this Tuesday. We told you about the story of the possibility of mass evacuations out of the Middle East. Boy, would this not be a nightmare scenario. Some of the other Drudge Mideast headlines, Iran planning to ramp up attacks. We told you about the freed hostage describing the tunnels, describing the hell they went through. Israeli flyers offering cash for intel on captives. Very smart move. Netanyahu angers military chiefs as he delays the invasion. Ultra-Orthodox wrestle with whether to serve. Moral issues there related to war and peace. War casts dark shadow over Saudi investor forum. Macron proposes international coalition against Hamas. That's kind of interesting, a little daring and unusual for Macron. UK Prime Minister blasts police for not acting on jihadi chants. Yes, instead of going after people for reading Bible verses that might offend people. How about death threats? These folks really need to get a clue. But as you know, it's very unlikely they're going to get a clue. Very dangerous people for sure. We've also got late word of Hamas rockets. Now targeting Tel Aviv leaving over a million Israelis scrambling for shelter. At least five Israelis injured from this barrage of rockets. Israelis wounded in separate incidents. All of the wounded said to be lightly injured. So, as you know, this is far from over. In many ways, I think the argument could be made this is really just beginning and the length of time this could stretch out for who knows how long another developing story former Trump campaign lawyer turned 2024 DeSantis supporter Jenna Ellis pleading guilty to a felony charge in relation to the 2020 Georgia election case which includes former President Donald Trump and 18 co-defendants According to court documents, Ellis is pleading guilty on the charge of aiding and abetting false statements and writings. So this is another one down. This case unveiled in August, as you know, accusing Trump and others of pursuing a conspiracy. However, the indictment itself lists a series of mundane acts to support his claim, such as reserving rooms and tweeting about election integrity hearings. Some of this is just frankly downright silly. But I'm sure the prosecutor is quite thrilled to have yet another plea deal under her belt 
that case again in Georgia. Time for us to take a look at the day in history. Let's go to Bernie. How are you doing, man? Well, Vince, I'm just fantastic. Just Glad like to ev- hear it. Just like every other day. And I hope this will continue as we address eight particular events that have happened in history. We begin in 1861. The first transcontinental telegraph was completed, which pretty much killed the Pony Express. Understandably so. 1861 was the year. 1901, a 63-year-old woman rode a barrel over this this uh, waterway. Would this be Niagara Falls? You better believe it. Oh, 1901 is when she did that. Can you believe that? 63-year-old no. woman. Well, with a barrel, yes. W- would you try it? Uh, with a barrel? Yes. Would you uh, Probably not with anything, I don't think. <laughs> You're not smart. E- yeah, I don't think with anything. <laughs> I don't think anything would would let me jump over Niagara Falls. 1931, the George Washington Bridge, the GWB, open, connecting New York City with New Jersey. 1940, quite appropriately, the 40-hour work week went into effect here in the U.S. 1969, Richard Burton bought this famous actress a diamond. Well, this famous actress... I don't know how many times she's probably been married more than any other female celebrity in history. Is it Marilyn Monroe? No. No, who is it? Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, Elizabeth Taylor. Okay, okay. You remember her. She was quite prolific when mm. it came to marriages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 1980, Poland's government legalized the Solidarity Labor Union. Uh, we were talking about aviation earlier. I'm sure you were old enough to remember this. This airplane made its final flight from JFK to Heathrow in London. Uh, it just got to be too expensive to operate. Oh, I'll just um, give you a hint. Supersonic travel. Uh, was this the... Is it? Its name is very much like the town just north of Charlotte in Cabarrus County, the county seat. Oh, man. Uh, the Concord? <laughs> that, that gave that gave it to me. It just took me just took me a second. A little don't slow you, in the uptake. Don't you I, love my hints? That, that hint helped me a lot. <laughs> that was I got that one on the fly. I came up <laughs> that was, with that. That was good that idea. I figured you would appreciate that. <laughs> that was good. And 2008, global stock exchanges suffer steep declines on this Black Friday. As you know, it was quite black mm-hmm. in 2008 as we watched a. What amounts to a meltdown, a pure meltdown economically, one we hope is not repeated anytime in the near future. Well, that's all the time we have for the broadcast today. We very much thank you for joining us for the broadcast today. Lord willing, we are back tomorrow at the same time right here. In the meantime, have yourselves a great day and God bless you. Adios.